in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 this morning. You should find an outline in your bulletin. There are full printed messages at both exits. If you'd like to get one, feel free, either now or later. And you can access those also on your um, mobile device or tablet or whatever through the church uh, uh, website, which the uh, password, I think, is in the bulletin there. So any way you'd like to follow along, please feel free. All of our sermons are now on sermonaudio.com, and you can um, go on the website and access them there as well. Paul writes this, Therefore, and literally I go with the marginal reading here of the New American Standard, therefore put to death uh, the members of your earthly body with regard to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Recently I got an email from a woman who uh, read one of my sermons online, and she asked for my counsel regarding a friend of hers who is part of, and these are her words, a very anointed church where the rich word of God is preached and the rich presence of God descends and the Lord is adding numbers and the church is growing in glory and fame. Um, She went on to say, though, that the pastor at this church has what she called a weakness where he engages in immoral relationships with the women who are in the inner circle of disciples. He invited her friend to be in that circle, and then he made advances toward her, which thankfully she resisted. She excused herself from the team. She broke herself off from any contact with this uh, pastor since... Uh, but then the friend was the question she wanted counsel on was, was it scriptural to do that because uh, for the friend to break off all contact? Because in her words, he is a very, very anointed man whom God is using mightily. Uh, she told me also that her friend is planning to continue in the same church because as She said, in that part of the world, there are not many options, not many churches. And I, in a subsequent email, learned she lives in India. I replied that in spite of all the outward appearances, the man is not in any way anointed by the Holy Spirit. Rather, he is really described as 2 Peter 2 and The short letter of Jude described the false teachers there, um, and I told her that her friend should leave that church immediately and on her way out the door take as many of her friends with her as she could that they would separate from this evil man. I think sadly, though, the same story could be repeated in just about every country around the world where the church exists, including the United States. Often in the news you'll see scandals about leading well-known pastors, other church leaders, sometimes mission 
leaders who are involved in immoral scandals. John MacArthur, in a recent book, Strange Fire, which I think is worth reading, uh, documents numerous moral scandals among various Pentecostal and charismatic um, pastors or church leaders. One such was a man I had heard years ago in 1970. I visited Calvary Chapel for the first time to um, find out what was happening with the Jesus movement in Southern California and heard this man named Lonnie Frisbee, unforgettable name, and uh, he was instrumental in the founding of Calvary Chapel and also the Vineyard Christian Fellowships, but it came out finally that he had been a practicing homosexual for all of his life there and uh, that fact had been well known to his friends and to his fellow charismatic ministers who still allowed him to serve. Uh, sadly, he died of AIDS in 1993. Back in 1988, way back almost 30 years ago, Leadership Journal, a, a journal for pastors, reported that almost one-fourth of pastors admitted to doing something sexually inappropriate with someone other than their spouse since entering the ministry. And uh, 12% of that number, or of, of the total number of pastors, one out of eight, admitted that that inappropriate behavior was adultery. Um, that same magazine reported that 20% of pastors said that they looked at sexually oriented media at least once a month, perhaps more often. And remember, that was before the internet came into existence, before there were cell phones that you could go online and easily look at pornographic material. Uh, the same issue reported that among readers of Christianity Today, which is an evangelical magazine, um, 23%, almost one-fourth, who were not pastors admitted to having committed adultery. Those are just shocking statistics to me. Uh, since then, as you know, moral values in our culture have not improved. Um, Barna, the Barna Group, which does surveying, here's, here's one for you. They found that 56% of people under the age of 25, think that not recycling is wrong, but only 32% think that viewing pornographic material is wrong. So more of them by far think it's wrong not to recycle than think that it's wrong to look at uh, sexually explicit material. That same survey um, said that nearly half of young people actively seek out porn monthly or more often, and in the church, 21%, one out of five youth pastors, 14% of pastors admit that they currently are struggling with porn. I think that number's probably low in light of the 1988 figure that probably some pastors are not reporting the truth there. Now, in addition to the sin of sexual sin that we're talking about, the sin of greed is a huge problem for evangelical Christians. Um, there is a so-called movement called the Prosperity Gospel, P 
improperly named because it's not a gospel at all, but it is thriving in in America. There are churches here in Flagstaff that attract many with this teaching. Uh, It is thriving all around the world. John MacArthur in the Strange Fire book cites a source that over 90% of Pentecostals and Charismatics in Nigeria, South Africa, India, and the Philippines believe this statement, God will grant material prosperity to all believers who have enough faith. MacArthur rightly comments, the prosperity gospel is more morally reprehensible than a Las Vegas casino because it masquerades as religion and comes in the name of Christ. But like the casinos, it attracts its victims with glitzy showmanship and the allure of instant riches after devouring their last cent like a spiritual slot machine, it sends them home worse off than when they came. So in view of this world we live in that is just flooded with immorality and, and greed, and in light of the fact that many Christians succumb to these sins, I think that Paul's words in our text dealing with sex, greed, and Christians are very relevant. He is telling us there that as Christians, we need to radically separate ourselves from all sexual immorality, and greed. It's kind of interesting that Paul begins this chapter, as we saw last week, with his head in the heavenlies. Keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. And then he instantly plunges into what seems like a disjointed, rather seamy subject of sexual immorality and greed, But it's not an accident. You notice he joins the two with the word therefore in verse 5. And what he's saying is, because in fact you've been raised up with Christ, because you have a new identity in Christ, therefore you have to live like that in this sinful world we live in. Um, We need to be in practice what we are in fact. God says we are raised up. We're We died with Christ, we're raised with him, as we saw last week. Now Paul says, living in this world, if you've been raised up with with Christ, live like that in your daily walk in this sinful world. So I want to explain this morning, first of all, what does Paul mean by his command? Then we'll look at the subject of Paul's command, the consequences if we disobey his command, and then finally, the hope that lies behind his command. First of all, the command, in a nutshell, is radical separation from sin. Uh, Usually, I like the New American Standard Bible, but as I mentioned when I read the text here, I believe the translators varied from their normal literal approach. They put the literal reading in the margin and they interpret it for you to harmonize it with Romans 6.11 by saying, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. That's not what he writes. He writes, put to death your members that are on the earth. And so the parallel is not Romans 6.11. It's rather Romans 8.13, 
where Paul there says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So the question is then, well, what does Paul mean when he says put to death the members which are on the earth? Well, he's using a figure of speech in that word members. Uh, For those of you who are English majors, it's metonymy. And a metonymy is when you take something that's associated with the thing and use it um, as a figure of speech to describe that thing it's associated with. For example, in American English, we might say, don't give me any of your lip. Well, we don't mean literally, you know, give me some of your lip or don't give me some of your lip. We mean words are associated with our lips. And we're saying, please, don't give me the words that, you know, you're going to say. Uh, And so here, when Paul says, put to death your members that are on earth, what he means is, kill the sexual sins that are associated with your body, and not just with your body, but with your old nature that inhabits your body. So that's the idea. Three things I want to point out about his command. First of all, Paul is using radical terminology. He easily could have said this, control your sexual impulses, and we would have said yes, amen. Good, good word. He doesn't say that. He uses this shocking, radical language to say, kill your bodily parts when it comes to sexual immorality and greed. Uh, Many years ago, I I ran into my old church history professor, um, one of my favorite professors in seminary, uh, John Hanna, at a thing where he was. And and, uh, I asked him, I said, John, what is the best book you've ever read on the spiritual life? And John reads Boku books. Okay, he is just a reader. He didn't even pause. He just shot back right away. John Owen, Temptation and Sin. Uh, wow, I better get that and read it, which I did. Uh, the bad news is it's 300 pages of difficult old English. The good news is there are about three or four different modern English condensed versions that you can read, and I've read them all, and I highly advise you to get them and read them. Uh, They are very good. But here's John Owen's advice in a nutshell. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's the option. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Curtis Vaughn writes this, the verb, about put to death, the verb is very strong. It suggests not that we are not simply to suppress or control evil acts and attitudes. We are to wipe them out, completely exterminate the old way of life. Slay utterly may express its force. The form of the verb makes clear that the action is to be undertaken decisively with a sense of urgency. Both the meaning of the verb and the force of the tense suggest a vigorous, painful act of personal determination. I've heard Bible teachers say, well, we don't need to put ourselves to death. That was done when we died in Christ. We just need to consider ourselves dead. Um, We looked at that last week, and that is true. That's half of the truth. That's the teaching of Romans 6.11, but that's not the full teaching. 
in light of that fact and that we are to consider it, now we have to take the action to, uh, in effect, lay hold of your sinful nature, wrestle it down, nail it to the cross, and as often as it climbs off the cross, do it again and again and again. Um, because that is the radical move that Paul's talking about in verse 5 when he says, put to death. Jesus used similar radical language, you'll remember, in the Sermon on the Mount in the context of telling us that if we lust after a woman, we've committed adultery in our heart. Uh, Jesus adds these radical words, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now you say, wow, did he mean that literally? Well, no, obviously, because we could do that. We could tear out both eyes, but as long as we have a functioning brain, we're still going to be subject to lust and greed. And the same, we might miss our hand, but we still could be involved in immorality. So what did they mean? Well, that's the second thing here. What they meant is get radical in dealing with your sin. Deal with it radically. Now, Jesus taught that all sin begins on the thought level. And here's how that works. There's not a single man who has ever cheated on his wife who didn't think about it first. It always, it never just happens, and then you go, oh, man, what did I do? You think about it, and you entertain it. If you cut it off right there in your thoughts, confess it, turn to the Lord, judge it, turn from it, it doesn't go any, any further. And so by tearing out my eye, by cutting off my hand, by putting it to death, it means I need to take radical action against my sin on the thought level the minute it tempts me. And let me be honest. We can play Christian games here. So you could look at me up here and say, my, what a godly pastor Steve is. And I could be up here lusting after some gal in in the congregation the whole time I'm up here. You don't know my heart. God does. And so you've got to get real honest with God on the heart level. And he knows my every thought. And the minute I have those thoughts, I've got to deal with it. I read in the news and saw somewhere on the Internet There's a huge dam, the Mosul Dam in Iraq, that's about to maybe collapse. It's got cracks beneath the water line. And they're trying to fix them. But if they don't, about a million people down down line are going to die. It's just going to wipe out a, a wide swath of people. And, you know, they know those are there, and they're working on fixing them. I hope they get them fixed before people die. But you and the Lord know the cracks beneath the surface in your life. And if they're there, fix them now, because if the dam breaks, everybody's shocked. Whoa, we didn't have any idea. But you see, you knew, God knew, and when it breaks, a lot of people get hurt and damaged by sexual sin. And that means putting to death my earthly members means I need to forsake, I need to confess all lustful thoughts the minute they they pop into my brain. I have to separate myself from it. 
And that means very practically, I guard myself from the magazines I read. And I'm not talking about porn magazines. I'm talking about news magazines, sports magazines. These things come in the mail and you're flipping through them and go, ooh, look at that babe. And, and I'll tear out the page, crumple it up or shred it or sometimes told Marla, would you please look through that magazine and tear out the stuff because I want to read the magazine, but I don't want to be tempted. Uh, some of you guys get Sports Illustrated. Somebody told me after I wrote the notes there that they allow you to opt out of the swimsuit edition. Do it. Uh, if you get that magazine, you cannot look at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition and not lust, guys. That's what it's designed to do is stimulate lust. And if you want to be pure, you want to obey scripture, you got to get rid of that stuff. I don't watch movies that are rated R for sexual scenes or nudity. I don't need that in my brain. The only TV I watch is usually the, the evening news while I'm doing my evening workout. And um, I see the snippets, the little ads they have for the TV programming. It's not Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet anymore. I mean, all this stuff is, is filth. And uh, it's just seeing the ads enough to tell me, you don't want to watch TV tonight. I don't have time anyway, but I wouldn't because... I can remember scenes from movies I saw years ago that I shouldn't have seen, and I can't remember verses I was trying to memorize this past week. That's just the way my fallen brain works. So if you want to be pure, you have to get radical in dealing with your sin. This radical action, thirdly, is action that I myself must take. You notice Paul doesn't say, let go and let God deliver you. In fact, he doesn't even say, pray about it. He, he doesn't say that. It's a command, put it to death. And it's based on the truth of our identity in Christ, verses 1 through 4. That's foundational. And we do it by the Spirit, as Romans eight thirteen says. So it's not a fleshly thing of, you know, um, asceticism. I'm going to you know, kill my body like Gandhi did or something. It's not that. But because of who we are in Christ, because of the indwelling spirit, Paul says, kill it. Kill your sin. Um, Now, I'm going to give you a verse that all of you can memorize before you walk out the door this morning. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, flee immorality. Flee immorality. Immorality, that's the only part of the verse you need to memorize, guys, to have a strategy. Don't stand there and pray about it. Don't get as near to the edge as you can to say, I wonder what's over there. You know, turn and run. That's the way you win the battle. Uh, There's an example in the Bible for us. Joseph, young man down in Egypt, he easily could have sinned with Potiphar's wife who was seducing him, trying to seduce him. I mean, he's in a foreign country. He's a slave. He could have said, oh, what hope do I have for a wife someday? Sure, let's give in. Instead, he left his coat in her hands and fled. And he got thrown in jail and lost his job because of it. But he did the right thing. That's the strategy. Get out of there. Run. And so God puts the responsibility for active obedience on me is what I'm saying. And it's not an impossible command or God wouldn't have given it to us. It's not opposed, by the way, to God's grace. And some people, when I 
mention stuff like this, they'll say, oh, that sounds legalistic. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly desires, Titus 2, 11 and 12 says. So God's grace is completely in line with obedience of putting to death my uh, sinful temptations in my heart. So that's the command, that I take whatever radical action I need to to kill the sin before it kills me. Let's look at the subject of the command, all sexual immorality and greed. You notice that Paul lists four sexual sins plus greed, and greed kind of underlies sexual sin because really what you want when you sin sexually is self-gratification at the expense of someone else, and that's the heart of greed. Uh, Now, I'm going to focus more on greed next week, devote a sermon to it, but so this morning I'm just going to touch on it, but let's look through the list. Immorality comes from a Greek word, pornea. We get our word pornography from that word, Um, and it's a broad word for any kind of sin, sexual sin, that takes place, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. So it would include sex between unmarried people. It would include adultery, homosexuality, any form of child molestation, of course, and I hate to even mention it, but bestiality. Uh, In our day and age, all forms of immorality are around us. And since all those sins, as I said, begin in the mind, any kind of media that stimulates you toward those sins should be off limits. The second word, impurity, is related to pornea. Um, It also uh, includes, though, impurity of thought as well as of action. And it reminds us that sin defiles us. I'm going to use a kind of gross illustration, but it gets the point across. When you're raising a family, I guarantee there will be a time you have to stick your hand into a dirty toilet to get something. It just happens in rearing a family. We used cloth diapers when we had kids in diapers, and you got to take those things and rinse them out in the toilet before you throw them in the washing machine. And it's gross. Sometimes the kids will drop something conveniently into a toilet that already needed to be flushed and you don't want it to go down. Guess what? You're on. You reach your hand in there. Now, after you've done that, your hand, needless to say, is defiled. And you wouldn't think about going through your day without cleansing it, usually two or three times with soap and hot water to make sure all your under your nails everywhere is clean. Well, that's a picture of sexual sin. It defiles us in God's holy presence, and so we need to confess it to him and have his cleansing. The third and fourth words, passion and evil desire, look at the emotional draw of um, sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul refers to it as burning and and. What it means is you're not going to be totally rational when you get tempted by sex. There's going to be this emotional element that's going to draw you in. And so you have to control it or it's going to consume you like fire would. It's going to enslave you. And by the way, 
Today we hear about sexual addiction. A more biblical term would be sexual enslavement. You're enslaved to that sin. Now, the final word then in Paul's list is greed. And as I said, I'll deal with that more next week. But note in passing, he equates it with idolatry. There are other references I put in the notes that greed and sexual sin are in the same context because greed is a desire for um, more and a desire that I would be fulfilled by using that which really rightfully doesn't belong to me without any regard for others. Uh, It's idolatry because, in effect, when I'm greedy, I'm putting myself in the place of God saying, I don't need to obey you, God. I just need to fulfill myself. And so all sexual sin has greed as its motive, but then greed is wider than that because it includes the desire for things, things, and more things. Um, I think the only reason that this whole prosperity thing could exist is because prosperity preachers and those who follow them have not judged their greed. It's greed-motivated. And if we had the biblical view that greed is as serious of a sin as as sexual sin and that it's tantamount to idolatry, I don't think that we would be seeing this movement as um, widespread as it is. And when you turn on the TV and you see some clown up there with his diamond rings and boasting about his mansions and his his Mercedes and all of these other luxury items and saying, you can have it too. It's your divine right as a king's kid. I think we would just go, are you kidding me? You know, this guy's no more Christian than Hare Krishna is. I mean, it's just out there. Have you ever heard of an American Christian being disciplined in a church for greed? I haven't. I just don't think we consider that as a serious sin. Um, Kent Hughes (laughs) cites a proverb it's kind of funny but sadly true he said if a man is drunk with wine we kick him out of the church if he's drunk with money we make him a deacon isn't that all too often the case so Paul says though we've got to put our greed to death again more on that next week then he goes on to show the seriousness of these sins by showing the consequences If we don't kill them, the consequence, if the command is disregarded, is God's wrath. Verse 6, for it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. Now, some of you may have a text that's lacking that last phrase, the sons of disobedience. Uh, It is in Ephesians 5, 6, and so some think that certain copyists brought it over from there. Whether it's here or not, it's in the Bible, and what it means, when the Hebrews describe someone as a son of, they meant the person is characterized by that thing. And so the idea here is not that if you've fallen in one of these areas, you're not a Christian. Obviously, Christians can fall, or Paul wouldn't be writing this to Christians. The idea, rather, is if your life is characterized by these sins— and you're unrepentant, you aren't turning from them, then you are a subject of the wrath of God, God's judgment. Now, we don't like to focus on God's wrath today because we prefer his love, of course. 
But the Bible is just full of references to God's wrath and judgment. And we, he is not God if he does not judge sin. He wouldn't be holy and he wouldn't be God. Uh, in the Bible, Jesus frequently, probably more than anyone else, spoke about hell. Um, we looked at the verses earlier. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. That's a better alternative, Jesus said, than being thrown into hell. He also referred to hell as a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place, he said, of torment and agony in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The man said, I'm in agony in these flames. And then Jesus referred to it in Mark 9, 48, as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a quote from Isaiah. But my point is this. You can't say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't believe in hell. It's one of Jesus's major teachings. And the Bible often connects God's judgment with sexual sin and the sin of greed. Sodom in the Old Testament was judged because they were immoral and they were greedy. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul wrote this. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that means sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and by that he is referring to a man who takes the position of a woman in homosexual relations, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And covetous refers, of course, to the greedy. Hebrews 13.4 has this warning, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be un defiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You get toward the end of the Bible, and Revelation 18 pictures Babylon reveling in sexual immorality and greed just before God's judgment falls. Those verses ought to scare you. I believe that fear of judgment is a legitimate motivator to follow the Lord. Maybe not the main one, his love is great, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that means fearing his judgment, among other things. God's wrath means he stands in fierce opposition to all sin, and he will judge all sin. Some of you may say, well, I I know a guy, and he's living with his girlfriend, he seems to be happy and doing well, and Me, I'm trying to be chased, and I'm just struggling. Well, the final chapter has not been written. God's word promises judgment. And so we need to heed that warning. Now, again, it doesn't mean if you've fallen into these sins, you're not a Christian. It means if these sins characterize your life, you need to go back to square one and find out, am I truly a child of God? And God doesn't give these warnings because he doesn't like us. God's commands are for our good, and he wants to bless us, and he loves us, and judgment is not a good thing. So the warning is clear. Those whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality and greed are not God's people, and they stand in danger of his wrath 
And so to go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do not be deceived. Now, thankfully, I don't need to end the message there because our text ends on an upper, and I'm glad for that, and that's the hope. The hope behind the command is this. God can deliver all those enslaved to lust and greed. See verse 7? And in them, that is in sexual immorality and greed, you also once walked when you were living in them. Now the word walked and living in them shows this wasn't an occasional sin. These people were living in a pagan culture. And immorality and greed were rampant. Everybody was into it, just like in our country today. But the good news is, walked and living are in the past tense. That's how they used to be. God delivered them. Same thing in 1 Corinthians. I read for you earlier, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the warning about all these sins that would not in- people committing them would not inherit the kingdom of God. And then there's this wonderful follow-up. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you. Notice the past tense. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so the good news is, no matter how enslaved to sexual immorality and greed you may be and any other sin, There is hope for deliverance if you come to the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, God's wrath and God's love met. He poured out the wrath that is due to us on Jesus. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the judgment we deserve. For everyone who believes in Jesus There is God's love and mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all who believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul gave this testimony, 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and then he adds, among whom I am foremost of all. So if Paul's at the top of the list of sinners, we're down the way some way. There's hope for him. There's hope for us. That's the uh, meaning of his verse there. No sinner is beyond the reach of the grace of God if you come to the cross, if you repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Alexander McLaren was a 19th century um, British preacher, and he used this illustration to illustrate our text. He said, suppose there's a man, he's working in a big factory, and his fingers get caught in these huge rollers. And it starts to suck in not only his hand, but in a minute his arm, and then his entire body is going to be flattened into a bloody mass. And he can't shut the machine off, but nearby there's an axe, and as his hand goes in, he grabs the axe, and he chops off his hand to save the rest of himself. That's the action that Jesus was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a gruesome picture, but what else did Jesus mean when he said it's better to cut off your hand than for your whole body to go into hell? And so Paul here is telling us if you're already engaged in those sins, if you're tempted by these sins, whack them off. 
take radical action, get them out of your life, kill them, because otherwise they will suck you in to eternal destruction. So do it, yes, in light of your new identity in Christ that we looked at last week. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.13, but do it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this straightforward talk to us about something that we all battle constantly. I would pray especially, Lord, if any are here and they do not know Jesus, that they would flee from the wrath to come, that they would embrace the cross as their only hope, that they would trust in Christ who died as a substitute on the cross for all who believe in him and that they would put their trust in him even this morning. I would ask, Lord, if any of your children here are dallying with sexual sin, they're tolerating the cracks in the dam, that they would take immediate action to kill their sin before it kills them. And, Lord, our desire is to be like Jesus, to be holy in thought, word, and deed. And we need your abundant grace and your power, so we ask that you would work this in all of our lives, that your church here would be a testimony in this community of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.